Major funding for NJ Spotlight News is provided in part by NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years, and by the PSCG Foundation. Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, expect to dig deep in your pockets to ride the roads in New Jersey. Toll and fare hikes are on the horizon. Less people will ride, which will reduce the revenues even further, and it'll just spiral out of control. Also, limiting opioid prescriptions here in the state seems to be putting a dent in addictions. Can the free naloxone program launched last year help put an end to the opioid epidemic? This gives individuals a second chance that when they experience an overdose, they have a friend or a loved one um, who is nearby who could administer the naloxone. It's, it literally saves lives. Plus, hanging in the balance, a bill to allow individuals with prior convictions to serve on juries has stalled in the State House. A quarter to a third of the entire black population of New Jersey is banned from space. So we're whitewashing these jury pools. And the right to vote. Who better than the young people in this room to stand and fight for injustice in this world? High school students explore a pop-up civil rights museum to learn about the power of their vote. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. From NJ PBS Studios, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venozzi. Good evening and thanks for joining us this Thursday night. I'm Brianna Venozzi. The squeeze is on for New Jersey commuters who are facing proposed fare hikes on New Jersey Transit's rails and buses, a toll increase on the Turnpike and Parkway, and depending on who you ask, a much maligned congestion surcharge for drivers entering Manhattan south of 60th Street. It all adds up to more money out of your pocket, but transportation officials say there's little other choice. Budgets are strapped and infrastructure improvements are adding up fast. Commuter advocates have long called on the state to find a dedicated source of revenue to help pay for it all. After this latest round of proposed increases, they've got a new idea on how the state could fund the projects. Senior correspondent Brenda Flanagan reports. So we've invited the governor to ride buses with us and to actually see what's going on um, on the ground. Talia Schwartz takes the crowded number nine bus in Jersey City and says NJ Transit claims it can't afford to increase service beyond one bus per hour. Now the agency's proposing a 15% fare hike with an additional 3% increase every year afterwards. Governor Murphy says that's fair. Talia says it's not for low and middle income riders. So I think that there is an overall disregard uh, for uh, this, this type of equity issue, and he's not focused on it uh, as we, we hoped he would be when he promised uh, to fix New Jersey Transit. The governor fa famously said uh, that he would fix NJ Transit if it killed him. He should be six feet under by now. And Power NJ's John Reichman says the agency's deep fiscal deficits, about $110 million next year and a staggering $760 million in 2026, can't be fixed by raising fares. Like several advocates, he thinks the governor should cancel a controversial $10.7 billion turnpike widening project and reroute that money. It could basically put NJ Transit on a sound fiscal footing 
It could prevent the fiscal cliff. Uh, it could finance so many needed um, infrastructure projects for public transportation. NJ Transit says it's installed a safe braking system on trains, hired more engineers and bus drivers, and it's buying more rail cars and buses. But unlike other mass transit systems, it lacks a dedicated funding source. So it depends on riders to pay more. The problem? A huge population, especially when you're talking about bus, our riders' salaries are not increasing 3% every year. And so we're going to ask people to pay a little bit more every single year for, in many cases, declining service. NJ Transit can count on getting close to a half billion dollars annually from the turnpike, but it's also raising tolls 3% a year. Governor Murphy blocked that toll hike right before the November elections, but recently said he'd sign it, noting, by responsibly investing in the maintenance of our state's highways and mass transit, we're continuing to prioritize the safety and mobility of all New Jersey residents and commuters. There's bipartisan push Back. The Democratic Party should not be pushing forward regressive taxes uh, that affect working class families. This is not time for a toll increase. But now after the election is over, you see the toll increase go through. Republicans like Senator Anthony Bucco call it politics. He wants to see justification for NJ Transit's fare hikes, too. Less people will ride, which will reduce the revenues even further and it'll just spiral out of control. So, you know, there really needs to be an overall fix. Buco won't speculate on where to find a billion dollars to save NJ Transit. Suggestions include raising New Jersey's sales tax or adding another surcharge to the corporate business tax. Senator Vin Gopal says a corporate tax hike should be on the table, that business can afford it. That should be where we're looking, and it's not going to affect the bottom line of any of these folks. By the way, Jersey's Transportation Trust Fund expires in June, so you can add Add that to lawmakers' to-do list. I'm Brenda Flanagan, NJ Spotlight News. On the flip side, commuters who use the Port Authority bus terminal in New York are on the verge of a major upgrade. The Bi-State Transportation Agency today unveiled it has federal approval on a draft environmental impact plan for the massive transformation at the world's busiest bus facility. That'll tear down the existing 73-year-old terminal and replace it with a modern version that they say can keep up with projected commuter growth over the next decades. The proposed construction will happen in two phases. Stage one is targeted to start at the end of this year to build a separate bus staging and storage facility. That'll handle ridership until a new terminal is complete. Phase two will see the construction of a more than two million square feet main terminal. That's targeted to be ready by 2032. After construction is done, the Port Authority says it'll give back three and a half acres as green space to the neighborhood surrounding it. The $10 billion project has been in the works for years, but advocates today said it'll be worth it. We are at long last replacing a functionally obsolete facility that we're standing in, and we're replacing it with a magnificent terminal for the future in the service of bus riders and in the service of the community. This week, a delegation from New Jersey is in the nation's capital for an annual conference that looks at ways to fight against drug abuse and, more widely, the opioid crisis. 
New Jersey aims to be a leader in that space, and a recent study conducted at Morristown Medical Center finds the state's new policies on opioids are moving the needle. The research looked at a 2017 law limiting opioid prescription practices and a mandated conversation between patients and providers about the risks involved. The findings were exactly what folks like Angelo Valenti, the executive director at Partnership for Drug-Free New Jersey, hoped for. Angelo joins me now from the conference in D.C. Angelo Valente, thank you so much for joining me. Um, let me ask you first about what was discovered once it was looked into um, the prescribing methods since 2017, since the changes were made in New Jersey. What did this study find? Well, what was very interesting was that despite the fact that there was less prescribing of opiates, uh, at the Morristown Medical Center uh, during between 2016 and 2018 when the study was first conducted, that there wasn't any real impact on patients' uh, pain management. And the reason that this is crucial is because for many years, uh, patients who were involved with post-operative care or many other reasons, accidents that might have occurred, uh, they would have been prescribed a large amount, a 30-day supply of opiates. And what we've learned is that it only takes five days for opiate dependency to set in. So the fact now that uh, we're seeing less prescriptions being implemented as a result of the law that took place that was first instituted in 2017, I think is a real step in the right direction in reversing the trends we've seen, unfortunately, for the last decade plus. Does fewer pills uh, out in the public, though, translate to less of a crisis? Well, I think what we'll see is less dependency over the long term because we know that dependency has set in as a result of the large numbers of prescriptions that were being filled and utilized. So I think we will see positive results. And this law that took place in 2017 in New Jersey was also unique in that not only did it limit the number of prescriptions from a, from to five days for the first prescription being issued, it also required that a prescriber, and that could be a doctor, a nurse practitioner, or a dentist uh, in many cases, that they were required to have a conversation with the patient or the parents of patients under the age of 18 to share with them the addictive quality of the drug they were receiving. And in Morristown at the medical center, not only did they look at limiting the number of prescriptions, but in many cases they looked at alternatives, non-opiate alternatives, uh, to, uh, to address acute pain. Yeah, I mean, the prescribing is one part of it, right? But the education around it is a whole other component, um, which your organization has been dedicated to. Are we making more inroads when it comes to that and the way that we're approaching it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, in fact, uh, since the 2017 law, uh, what we also have studied is how uh, prescribers were responding to this law. And prior to 2017, about 20% of prescribers were having this educational conversation at the time of first prescribing and also looking at alternatives. That increased over 90% in 2019 when a second study was conducted, specifically looking at the educational component of the 2017 law. What we have done is we have created a continuing medical education program for prescribers in New Jersey. And it's a great way for us to be able to share this crucial information, not only to the patient, but also to the individual who's making that determination about a prescription or an alternative to opiates. 
Angelo Valenti is the executive director of the Partnership for a Drug-Free New Jersey. Angelo, thanks so much. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Advocates also say harm reduction efforts are proving to be successful here. Just this week, state officials announced more than 100,000 free doses of the opioid overdose antidote naloxone were distributed in the first year of a new program. The goal is to reduce fatal overdoses by making the life-saving medication more widely available without a prescription. As senior correspondent Joanna Gagas reports, the program is giving many residents a second chance. Since we launched this program in January of last year, we have issued more than 132,000 doses of naloxone. It's an encouraging number for state leaders at the one-year mark of the Naloxone 365 giveaway program that offers the opioid overdose reversal drug to anyone 14 or older who wants it. This gives individuals a second chance that when they experience an overdose, they have a friend or a loved one um, who is nearby, who could administer the naloxone. It's, it literally saves lives. Anyone can access the drug from a participating pharmacy. The number's grown from only a couple hundred pharmacies opting in to now at least 660 pharmacies participating. John Power owns Powers Pharmacy in Pemberton and is one of them. Seven years ago, I lost my son, uh, Christopher, and I've chosen to uh, get involved with this and try to help people and, and really in his memory because on Christopher is no different than many of the other people who are being lost and we're losing really our best and our brightest because I still think stigma plays a large role in uh, opioid use disorder. Power tries to break down that stigma by talking to his customers about the need to carry naloxone even if you think you'll never use it. Anybody, a woman can carry it in her pocketbook. You can keep it in your glove boxes. Don't leave it in temperatures of heat because none of us ever know even when we'll run into a stranger who you might have the ability to save their life. The New Jersey Harm Reduction Coalition has also worked to educate the public over the last year, bringing naloxone into the places where those most vulnerable of overdose are likely to be. We see people from all walks of life uh, accessing this. I think the biggest piece was that the education piece wasn't there. And individuals didn't know that they can access this program. And finally, after $6 million has been invested by the state into their program, there's some good news in the fight against opioid overdose deaths. We have seen a trend in New Jersey of individuals who are dying by overdose um, decreasing over the last couple of years. There were close to 2,400 suspected overdose deaths in 2023, but it's down by about 400 from the year prior. And while it's good news overall, there are disparities in that success because the number of overdose deaths in black and brown communities are not decreasing. We've been um, instituting efforts to reach into those communities to um, uh, to make them aware of treatment that's available, um, you know, without out-of-pocket expenses if individuals don't have insurance and don't have income. And Eddie Frierson says they're focused on harm reduction efforts to keep people alive in those communities long enough to at least reach treatment. We know that um, every time we test drugs, fentanyl or xylazine is in the supply. We know it's there. Our participants know it's there, too. But if they know it's there and it can be harmful to them, when we talk about overdosing, we have to give tips on how you can use safely so that doesn't happen. And if you do overdose, um, you'll have naloxone available at all times. Where would you like the state to invest its resources in the coming year? Education is key. It's number one. We have to go into the communities when people don't know about naloxone, when people don't know about harm reduction. The educational part to the younger people. Make them aware now before they even get into it 
because once they get into it, before they know it, they'll say, well, it's time for me to stop. And all of a sudden they realize they can't because that physiological change has occurred in the brain. So education is the key along with the continued provision of the naloxone. You too can help decrease the overdose numbers. Just look for a naloxone provider near you at stopoverdoses.nj.gov. I'm Joanna Gagas, NJ Spotlight News. A controversial bill that's been bounced around Trenton for decades may finally have the momentum it needs to pass. Lawmakers are seriously considering legislation that'll allow people with previous criminal convictions to serve on juries. Supporters say the law has long created racial disparities in jury polls, but as Ted Goldberg reports, a recent amendment to the bill could derail its chances. If we're going to say that we're allowing second chances, there can't be no but. As city councilman, Frank Gilmore helps write laws that run Jersey City. But because of a drug conviction from 20 years ago, he can't serve on a jury. A lot of people are perplexed. They didn't actually didn't believe me. And they was like, but you're elected official. That's impossible. Like, why you can't sit on a um, jury? They was like, are you sure? Like, they're interrogating me, asking me questions. Excluding all of those people for prior convictions, it just seems like we're double downing, even though you've served your time and now you should be able to participate in the judicial system like everyone else. Lawmakers in Trenton are trying to pass a law that would allow people with convictions in New Jersey to serve as jurors. Under New Jersey law, you can't do that if you've been convicted of an indictable offense, generally known as a felony. Different versions of this bill had exceptions for aggravated sexual assault or murder, but the version reintroduced by Assemblywoman Verlina Reynolds-Jackson does not. There's always the excuse uh, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And the list will go on and on. According to the New Jersey Institute for Social Justice, hundreds of thousands of people can't serve on juries in New Jersey with disproportional impact on people of color. A quarter to a third of the entire black population of New Jersey is banned from space. So we're whitewashing these jury pools. The bill has not come up for a vote in committee. Republican Senator John Bramnick doesn't think it will get any support from the GOP and says the law could interfere with the jury selection process, or voir dire. This bill was not clear as to whether you could have this potential juror even go off, even if, even if the judge believed there was cause. So uh, the bill, in my judgment, was not ready for prime time. Assemblywoman Reynolds Jackson says that's not the case, and under the bill, Lawyers can still request for jurors to be dismissed if they think their background might influence their judgment. It keeps it optional, right? It keeps it, it makes it where that they could be if the attorney wanted to invoke the law to your process, they could do that. But it doesn't make it mandatory. You've got somebody on the stand who was, um, let's say, a victim of a burglary and on the jury are two people who, who burglarized houses. Uh, I, I don't think so. Gilmore says he could be unbiased while serving on a drug case, even though drug charges put him in prison for seven years. The work that I do speaks to me having to be impartial. I vote on budgets that speak to police um, salaries and things like that. So I'm, I'm already in the field of work while I have to remain neutral and I have to do what's in the best interest of what's right. One of the sponsors of a previous bill with exceptions, Senator Brian Stack, recently pulled his sponsorship of that original bill. We reached out to Senator Stack, chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee where the new bill will be considered, and we didn't hear back. 
Without his support, a bill like this could die in committee or lead to a different bill that restores jury duty for people with lower level convictions. For NJ Spotlight News, I'm Ted Goldberg. In our Spotlight on Business report, millions of lower income families with kids could be in line for a boost in their federal child tax credit. The House on Wednesday passed a $78 million bipartisan tax package to temporarily expand the child tax credit and restore a number of business tax benefits. That combination gave lawmakers on both sides of the aisle key policy wins. The deal covers a three-year span. A larger credit would go to low-income families of some 16 million kids during the first year and, according to progressive think tanks in Washington, would lift about half a million children nationwide out of poverty. But the bill faced pushback from moderates and Republicans, including New Jersey Congressman Tom Kane, because it doesn't raise the cap on state and local tax deductions known as SALT. Kane and Democratic Representative Frank Pallone were the only no votes from New Jersey. In a statement, Pallone said the bill leaves too many families below poverty levels and gives lopsided benefits to corporations. It now heads to the Senate for a full vote. Turning to the markets, a potential trouble spot for the labor market. Companies announced the highest levels of job cuts in January since early 2023. Meanwhile, stocks edged higher after Wall Street's worst sell-off in months. Here's today's closing trading numbers. And tune in this weekend to NJ Business Beat with Raven Santana. Analysts expect record air travel this year, so Raven's talking to aviation and transportation experts about travel trends for 2024. She also visits Newark Airport's new Terminal A to learn how it's aiming to make the state a global destination. Watch it on the NJ Spotlight News YouTube channel Saturday at 10 a.m. Finally tonight, a full-fledged kickoff on this first day of Black History Month for Plainfield Public School students, where students today helped open a pop-up museum at the high school that'll allow them to explore historical moments of the civil rights movement and experience the power of voting both past and present. Melissa Rose Cooper was there. And with the snip of scissors, Plainfield Public Schools officially opened this pop-up museum inside Plainfield High School in honor of Black History Month. Today we embark on a journey through time, exploring pivotal moments and individuals who shaped the course of history and who've paved the way for a more inclusive and equitable future. People like Ruby Bridges, who became an icon of the civil rights movement, depicted in this exhibit through her eyes. As you walk through the, the segregated classroom, you will witness the challenges faced by Ruby Bridges as she took those courageous steps towards education. Capture a moment in history by sitting behind the desk and immerse yourself in the struggles and triumphs of a young trailblazer. Our history and our rich culture should be celebrated all year round. Every day you all should be uh, speaking the words of our ancestors and our leaders who paved the way for us and you all um, living here today and being able to sit in these seats and do 
what we're here to do and be educated and learn so that we can then inspire the generations to come. Plainfield Public Schools teaming up with the nonprofit Civic Engagement Group Project Ready to present the museum. We started a little over five years ago with the intention of bringing black and brown communities together so that they can understand the importance of civic engagement and the through line in between equitable education. Chief Executive Officer Chanel McLeod says she was excited to work with the district after hosting a voting exhibit in Newark last year. It is not lost on me that we were able to create this experience in the library a place where so many people are trying to ban books, a place where so many people are trying to ban history. And the fact that Plainfield High School was ready and willing to open up its space so that we could evaluate, so that we could relive, and so that we could plan for a future while viewing the voting power experience. The goal is to make sure students understand the importance of exercising their right to vote at all levels so they can select people who best represent their perspectives and voices. Who better than the young people in this room to stand and fight for injustice in this world, whether it be internationally, when you open your phones, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and you see lifeless bodies. That's not normal. We need someone to stand up and fight. Who better than the young people in this room? I just want us all to ensure that we take in this moment that we live in this moment, that we remember this moment, and each moment that we continue to make moving forward and that we think about all that has transpired before us and continue to use that to energize and mobilize as we move forward, trying to make a difference in the lives of each other and uh, future generations to come day in and day out. The pop-up museum will remain open at Plainfield High School for the next two months. For NJ Spotlight News, I'm Melissa Rose Cooper. That's going to do it for us tonight, but make sure you catch Reporters Roundtable tomorrow. David talks with Republican National Committeeman Bill Palatucci on what his party needs to do to recover from last year's legislative losses and prospects of winning the 2025 governor's race. Then a panel of local reporters break down this week's political headlines. Watch Roundtable tomorrow at noon on the NJ Spotlight News YouTube channel. I'm Brianna Venozzi for the entire NJ Spotlight News team. Thanks for being with us. Have a great evening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child. And RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together.